Blessed you are our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please add an our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people of Israel. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who selected us from all the peoples and gave us his Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. All right. Quick, real quick, one to ten, how would you rate the... Class <coughs> League service yesterday. What you missed? What is that? It's a one being dry, ten being wet. Ten being man, it was it was great. I wouldn't change a thing. I would say a nine. Nine. Eight because it was wet. It was <laughs> pretty wet. I'd say seven because we, and by we I mean me because I helped. We kind of muffed the base numbers. <laughs> yeah. I'd say nine. Nine. <laughs> seven. seven. Why seven? Good, um, I, I don't know. I, I, I come from a cool Hebrew service, and I was like really in the, in, in the mood. Uh, not that it was good, it was just like. Overly oh, English. Anglicized. Anglicized. Okay. Non Savardi. That's <laughs> saying nine. Nine. Yeah. Pete? 9.5. 9. 9.5. 9. 9. Smart guy. <laughs> I, uh, He's got to live here. <laughs> this is the second time I've tried to, to get those page numbers right, but I've, I've come to the conclusion that I'm never going to have to worry about that again. Because I'm getting Moxarim. That's all there is. So. Which brings me to my next point. Uh, Moxarim for Yom Kippur. If you need a Moxor, raise your hand and we will get you a Moxor. How many people need a Moxor? One. Wow. You have one? We, our family has two. So you're raising your hand because you well, want I, another cheap one or what? Well, I'm trying, if we have two, that's what happens mom and dad. So, so pecking order. I two. One, two, one. One, well, one. Kippur? Yeah. Oh. For like next Wednesday, yeah. yeah. Tuesday night. One. You'll get them in time. I will get them in time. One, two, three, or three and four. I just need one. Oh, uh, we have two. He needs one. Stop telling me what you got <laughs> and tell me what you need. One. One, two, three, you want four. Do you want your husband? <laughs> He's stuck on that one. <laughs> One? Yes. One. Two. Two. Two? <laughs> two. <laughs> <laughs> His family's a lot bigger. He gets two. <laughs> yes, one. Eight. I don't think I need one. I feel like I have one on my... in my sock. <laughs> In my Glock drawer. I have one in my Glock drawer. Right. Right. So that's, that's well, what do you think he said? <laughs> All right. Next Taxation with representation, apportioning the community burden. Oh, it's got to be. It's the right. It's the right. Keep going, please. 
Shema something, huh? You shall teach them. Who shall teach them? The parents right. shall teach them. It's both to their children. Actually, actually, it doesn't say it doesn't say parents. It says you shall. So, all those but units. it is collective. Right. So, it, so the it is community. The community. We'll make sure that the next generation understands. The we 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 take that to mean that obviously because it mentions children that sure. it is parents. Well, primarily, I would agree. As as a parent, primary responsibility for his education, it's me. Secondary, it's you. And if you don't think that, we need to talk. Like the company that uh, our, our family owns and runs, it was predicated upon the fact that I was going to bring Peter with me to work. I was going to bring him to meet business owners so that I could be held accountable. The same guy he saw at the kitchen table talking about God is the same guy that was going to be talking about God to those business owners. That was what our company was raised in and founded upon. And I told those business owners, pagan some of them, I respect the way you're running your company, and I want my son to learn from you. Because it's my job to teach him, and some of that's going to come from me. So that's the deal. Who is empowered to decide exactly what the government should fund? Got one here. Who's empowered to do that? Right now, us, Congress. Congress. This, I mean, this, this government. Congress has the power of the purse. Congress has the power of the purse. Congress is the one who's determining. Wow, now, two hours early. Holy cow, it's a holiday. Actually, I would say that that's no longer true. I would say who, who is empowered uh, is the executive branch exclusively. I would tend to agree with you, especially in this administration. Who would you say is empowered by the Constitution? Congress? I mean, that's... Congress has... According to the Constitution, has that I mean, the budgetary um, assessment and what, whatever you want to call it is in the responsibility of, of Congress, of the, of the legislative branch. And the, and the Congress, coming from the legislative branch, the Congress right. and, and is simply voting and doing what I've sent my representative exactly to do. So inadvertently, it is the people they represent. Indirectly. Indirect. Actually, very indirectly, because there was a representative for, uh, republic is not direct democracy. That's correct. And we don't want a democracy. Everybody understands that, right? A democracy is actually... <laughs> what's democracy? Inefficient? It's chaos. Yeah, it's mob rule is really what it is. Feel free. Type, don't type. No, no, no. I agree. But we, don't, we actually don't elect. The, the, um, the people don't elect. It's not um, it's exactly as Rick says. It's a representative, and then our uh, delegates, they, those who are actually elected. Uh, That's true. Right. Yeah. And um, you, you may disagree with the way it, it works, but I believe that if you look at it in its purest form, it is the best form of government you could possibly find. A representative democracy is incredible. Well, I have a question. It, it removes a lot of But you of think the a theocracy would be better? That's what I was saying. That's what I was saying. I know you know that. On the planet. That's exactly right. He's yeah, right. got the name of some moon god. Alright. So, who is... So, so empowered now, 
it, it seems to be the executive branch making a lot of executive fiat, um, executive orders and so forth. Uh, even potentially at times seemingly, allegedly, violating or even changing laws. And, and we've got some, some stuff uh, that's going on around the country. Now, if we were to just make this about our government and what's going on right now, we would not win the principles that I want to discuss. And it would become a free-for-all, and we would start to bash our own president, which I don't want to do. I mean, we talked about this. You may disagree with his politics. You may disagree with him personally. You may disagree with his theology. I don't really care. You're commanded, and you are obligated to honor the, the president because of his office, not for who he is. Let's avoid the Lashon Barat. I'm not going to vote for this president. <laughs> Respectfully. Respectfully. So we got a funding shortfall. What a surprise. It happens in almost every community in the country these days. And it seems that uh, we, we want to provide this social service. We want to provide that social service. We want to provide this. We want to provide that. And the taxes go up. And eventually, we have a funding shortfall. And there, there appear to be choices. We can cut the expenses. That appears to be a non-starter for certain political persuasions, including Republicans. Cut services, which evidently, if you simply maintain, also means cut, according to <laughs> how, how dramatic that is. You can raise taxes. Everybody loves that. Or we can raise the service fees. Now, I just give you as an example, or we can do a combined approach, right? The combo deal, where we do a lot of all. Um, I'm reminded of our own uh, light rail transportation system, here, which uh, I will tell you that I uh, was going to vote against, and then found that since I'm not in the city of Charlotte, I'm in the county of Mecklenburg, but not the city of Charlotte, I did not have the opportunity to vote one way or the other. Although my county taxes are being used for something like that. I didn't get the I didn't get that. So, uh, but I would have voted against it. And the reason I would have voted against it is because I don't take the light rail, and I don't plan to take the light rail. And I think I told a story two, three weeks ago um, about uh, that the, uh, shortly after the founding of our country, um, man was running for Congress and uh, went around to the farmers in his district and was uh, on horseback and, and trying to woo them and get their votes. And this old farmer uh, agreed to vote for him because he said that he supported the Constitution of the United States. And when he came up for re-election, he went around on the horse again and trying to get those votes and got back up to the old farmer again who was out there repairing the fence. And, uh, and the old farmer wouldn't do it. He said, no, I, I can't vote for you, son, because uh, you don't support the Constitution. And the, the guy was shocked. He said, I'm, I'm all about the Constitution. He says, no, well, no, there was, a, there was a, some kind of catastrophe, and you actually voted in Congress to provide funds to help just these people <coughs> that were affected. He said, that's against the Constitution. Every bill you pass, every dime you spend, has to be used for the welfare of the entire country, not for a select group. Can't give you my vote. That man changed his politics that day. 
it's a story that more people should hear. So I, I looked at the, the light rail thing and realized two things. First off, the light rail here um, was only going to be used by a select group of people. And I felt if they wanted to ride the train instead of their car or whatever, that they should pay for it. If you want light rail, buy it. If you can't afford it, too bad. I want a Maserati. I can't afford it either. Ah, here we are. So we have a camaraderie. Secondly, <laughs> it appeared that uh, there was no other city anywhere in the country that had put in light rail that was self-funded. The people get on and take, take their money, and what they put in the till paid for the light rail. So I was against it from the very beginning. It turns out now, from some folks I've talked to that have actually, how many of you actually ridden the light rail? One, two, three, four, five, six. Every day Seven. to work. Really? Okay, put your hands down. How many of you not? I think it's easier. One, two, three, four, five. And you didn't even live here, okay. Um, so, did, did, did the conductor come and ask you for a ticket? No, they do. They do occasionally. Yeah, you can easily get on a ride without it because you've never no, seen anybody. But no, I can I can right. second that. Um, they've started to tighten that yes. a little bit. Yeah. Where um, do you have to pay to get on the train? Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask how long they've they started? How long has it been open? Three years. You can be fine if you're caught on without a ticket. No. They have. They have. They have. I've been told to get off. I've been told to get off because they're still working on that. So. So it, I mean, it, it is as much people as go on. There, there, is, there is a system of making sure people are legitimately now. See, see now. Not, well, try that on your airplane. Let me see if I understand. <laughs> can you get on the train? You can definitely get on. Yeah, without a ticket. Of course. Yeah, you can. You can. Yes, you can. See, I find that problematic because I think most <laughs> men are sinners. <laughs> well, there it is. Okay. So we. And we move on. What would you choose in a case of, and I could, I could, you know, the good rabbi who's teaching this class from Ohio, he actually goes to this incredible scenario. It takes him 20 minutes to do it. I, yeah, pick, pick a scenario. I don't care. Pick a city. What would you do? If you were on the board, if you were in the government, if you were the guy who had the purse strings, would you cut the expense? Would you cut the service? Would you raise the tax? Or would you raise a fee? What, what would you do? Take the light rail. Do that. Yes. Well, not specifically from this city, but other cities that have found themselves in like borderline bankruptcy. Yes. You know, the biggest thing that they've had to do is cut services. Charlotte's actually had to cut some services. People may not realize it, but they sure. have had nipped some things. And then they recently tried to raise taxes to try and improve another part of the city that I will never visit. And the opposition was so great that actually it got shot down. Yeah. So I, I see what they're doing. What would you do, Josh? Um, I think that the first thing we have to look at is cutting our expenses. It's like a family. If I'm looking at my budget and I'm shelling out more money than I'm taking in, and this is going to be a problem, the first place I have to look is um, how I can cut back my expenses. Long term, there might be ways to make more money, we, we, but the immediate step has to be cut my expenses. So we call this living within our beyond means. our means and living within our means. One of the one of the things that that our government has done is they have uh, projected revenue on the basis of inflation, 
and what they consider to be growth, and yet at the same time turn around and do not promote growth. So they're, they're expecting growth as a natural occurrence, and yet they don't. And we do the same thing as individuals. We, we assume that if I stay in my job long enough, I'll make a little bit more money over time. So we could possibly grow so that our expenses could grow with our income. With it. Yes. Uh, and, and but but I, would, I would argue that you don't do that until you see precisely. the rate. And that's the difference. The difference is, and that's, and that's what I was going to say, as I agree with Joshua, it's like cut the expenses. But we're not saying we're going to cut them forever. We say we cut them to what we have now right. with the anticipation that our growth, that our any increase, we could use growth in the future to uh, Put increase. Services back. Whereas on the flip side, that concept as it was brought in the 1960s was, okay, we have we have the cost of living that has been uh, factored in. And then for, for some magical reason, shortly thereafter, anytime you wanted to cut back on because inf the growth didn't match, it was considered a cut, cut. instead of growth. I would say the combo approach with cutting and also what uh, Joshua said about uh, future revenue, which is the principle is you reap what you sow. So if you reap, um, you don't necessarily have to raise taxes. If the economy is growing, then there'll be more revenue, not not through uh, more taxes, but more uh, reaping. Broaden. And in the case of things like light rail, there might be opportunities for um, raising service fees. If you find that, for example, there's a select group of people that are enjoying a benefit that's not shared by the rest of the community, and that particular expense is costing you enough money that you're not meeting your budget needs, there might be a need to raise library fees or raise fees for this public transportation system so that those who are using it help pay for what they're using. Charlotte and Mecklenburg did that with the library, right? So the fees for holding a book overdue. They lowered the expense by closing libraries on certain days, yeah. Saturdays, or whatever it was. Um, and then they laid off some librarians. So it's good, though, because they didn't cut every single library on a Monday. They right. scattered it out the way you still have an option to go to it. Exactly. So it, it appeared to be a, a combo approach. From a wisdom perspective, what's the best answer? Cut your expenses. Live within your means. Yes. Don't get here in the first place. That's the best answer. That's it. <laughs> don't get here. Yeah, that's wishful thinking. Right? <laughs> don't don't allow yourself to get to this point. Don't have a funding shortfall. How can you avoid that? How can you guarantee that moment? Budget. Budget one. Planning. Self-control. The planning and self-control. I'm looking for specifics along these lines. Well, I mean, what I do, in, in just speaking from a business perspective, right? Whether you're a household, whether you're a business, whether you're a government, cash flows. Mm -hmm. It's the lifeblood of any organization. Mm -hmm. So it comes down to having a current budget and having a realistic. Uh, forecast and you're managing to forecast. So if you forecasted 
And if you do pay, you get to vote. And only the people that pay will get to vote. That's what I was going to ask. Didn't property owners were the only people that voted. Right. Now, now we're going we're gonna to look here. Just hold that thought, Vince, because you're, you're, I mean, you're segueing. I'm sorry. Exactly sorry. Sorry. Perfect. Perfect. That, that is exactly what the Talmudic lesson is for tonight. Because uh, we started with taxation with representation. But that's not what the Bible teaches, and nor is it then what the Talmud ended up putting down. Summary of Jewish law. The greatest authorities from all over the Jewish world agree that in Jewish law there is no one-size-fits-all tax policy. Instead, tax law follows local custom. Because it's all dependent on the local community and what they need and what they can pay for and what they can't pay for. There is no one answer that gets it all. Compelling payment. This is from the Mishnah, the Batra one. For we compel him, anyone living in the courtyard, to build a gatehouse and secure entrance to the courtyard. We compel him, that is, anyone living in the city, to build a wall, doors, and a security bar for the city. If that's where you live, then the whole community is kind of relying on you to provide the security. You don't have any choice. You're living there. You've got to do this to protect the community. It's a compelling thing. Again, the community puts the pressure on and brings to bear. Members of a city can compel each other to build the city's walls and bolted gates to dig cisterns and water channels and to provide wages for police and guardsmen, just like you were saying earlier. That's from the Shulchan Arut in Goshen, Mishpat. This is the law as well for all the needs of the city, compelling each other to contribute. So, it's not a problem to have a tax. It's not a problem to be compelled to do something for the good of the community. That's what community is all about, is that we join together and help one another. So this seems to be a regular thing. No taxation without representation is what we hear all the time in the media. That's presumably what our government was founded upon. But actually, what these two gentlemen are just bringing up is exactly what the Torah and the Talmud teaches. There is no representation without taxation. If you got no skin in the game, you don't have a say. It's as simple as that. You're not a property owner? <laughs> Why would you be talking about property taxes? Why would you have anything to say about what my property taxes are going to be doing? You don't own any property? Keep your mouth shut. You don't have, you don't have a say. You want to say? Buy some property. Pay the tax. Put some skin in the game. And we'd love to listen to what you have to say when it's your money. Don't tell me how to spend my money. Don't tell us a folk. You were in the corner here with Rashi and his sons-in-law. He had nothing but daughters, but his sons-in-laws uh, were uh, the uh, sages of that era that Rabbein uh, Tom, you know, uh, was one of his sons-in-law. And uh, actually, that's why our Mezuzot are not straight up and down or horizontal. <laughs> halfway because father-in-law and son-in-law argue. I should hope that would never happen. <laughs> <laughs> or that at least you'll take the 45 degree angle on That's right. <laughs> That's right. I, get, I get three sons-in-law. Yeah, that's, that could go all sorts of things. <laughs> they collect according to the proximity of houses to the wall. 
But maybe Tom explains this to me, that the poor who live close to the wall should give more than the poor who live distant from it. Because where's the safest place to live? On the wall that's going to be attacked or in the middle of the city? Where's the safest place? In the middle of the city, right? So if you're poor and you live close to the wall, you should pay more than the poor guy in the center of the city. Doesn't matter whether you're poor, you got to pay more. Similarly, wealthy who live close to the wall should give more than the wealthy who live distant from it. The wealthy who live distant from the wall should give more than the poor who live close to it, since the city collects according to wealth. It's progressive tax. And that's what they said. You get more, you pay more. They're not paying for flat tax. No! Flat tax is no go. No, no, no. How many people in this country now pay absolutely no income tax? 51%? Well, apparently today in the news is 47%. 47%. 46.4. That's actually, I think, the biggest issue with this problem when you're talking about representation here, because um, as someone who does not own the property except my vehicle sitting in the street outside, which I pay very little tax. Um, still a tax. Still a tax. I still feel that I have a right to vote because I pay income tax. I pay a significant Actually, I didn't of money say no two property tax. I said if you don't pay, you don't vote. There's two taxes that are recognized and discussed at the time. Income tax, where you pay a tax on your wage. And property tax, where you pay a tax on your property. Those are the two primary taxes. You don't pay either one of those. You don't get a say. What they say. Now, on the progressive tax, the wealthy paying more. I'm curious if the sage's interpretation of that is that they pay a no higher amount or if it's a higher percentage. Because technically, if you have a wealthy guy who makes, you know, 100 gold coins a month and he pays 10%, he will pay more than the less wealthy guy who's making 50 gold coins There's, a month. There should be no question in your mind. It's percentage based. So, so, so flat tax is right. So the percentage is the same. <laughs> right. Let's look at the mid-rush. This is uh, this is a mid-rush by a rabbi who just showed up at a new town to be a rabbi. When I came to the city where I had been invited as rabbi, there was a dispute over the appointment of an executive secretary. The city had 50 tax-paying households. Among them was a certain man who, together with his two sons and his two sons-in-law, had great wealth. So may it be. <laughs> this family gave three fifths of the taxes of the city. That's sixty percent for those of you in Gastonia. The rest of the fifty gave only the remaining two fifths, which is forty percent. For instance, if the congregation needed to pay out fifty gold pieces, these five householders contributed thirty gold pieces, and the remaining forty-five householders only contributed twenty. This particular man and his family did not want the candidate for secretary that the rest of the congregation wanted, and so they vetoed his appointment. The rest of the congregation brought the complaint before the new member. Cool. It is pretty cool. Who's going to pay for the executive secretary? Well, the tax. So what are the rich people thinking? I'm paying the majority of the tax, I should have the majority to say, or if anything, at least a veto capability. I, if I don't want this guy, I shouldn't have to pay for him. How many of you can, can really feel this whole thing from your heart, right? I mean, holy cow, welcome to America. Okay, so 
Occupy the shtetl. Take it by the force. Occupy. We are the 99%. So let's look at the crowd to make sure you got it, right? The rest of the city is making up 45, right? The family, 5% of taxes paid. The families get 60%. The rest of the city's got 40%. The family's operating under the assumption. Since they paid the majority of the taxes, since being wealth addition, uh, they shoulder much larger burden. They had a veto power over this appointment. So what, what do you do? You're the rabbit. What do you do? We'll reorder the tax base. Yes, sir. Give the family 60% of the votes. Okay, so I think we've got a couple of choices. That's one, right? We give the wealthy, the ones paying more tax, more votes. What's another way to do it? That seems, that seems to bring us to a conundrum of the wealthy overriding, always overriding. And the opposite is the poor wanting to pay less because of all these rich people. Yeah. So it's the, it's the opposite effect. You can't give the poor more vote than the rich. If I do that, they're going to I'm catering, right. I'm catering exactly. both cases to the majority. Either the majority of the wealth or the majority of the people. Right, now are, right. right. So it's, it's majority rule either way. We talked about that a little while ago. That's the mob rule. That's democracy. Whether you count dollars or heads. So the Constitution is, was written by men who believed that the minority needed to be protected. Precisely. And they need to have a say, right. yet though they are the minority. And, and, and while that is the case, you preserve and you protect those regardless of number, you still give lar larger headcounts the, the, the weight they deserve. Thus you have the Senate and thus you have the House of Representatives. Well, that's, so that's, that's, that's true. Right. Yeah. Well, under that theory, the family's protected. They're the minority. In the headcount. But that's what I'm saying. Right. We actually right. have we have the two. The, see, that's the point of the slide is you have two things. Right. Two majority. The minority of the money or the minority of the people. Right. right. Well, the and, and, and I think he's hit on the answer, but we'll, we'll keep it consistent. The other alternative is you have an open election for like five people to be the board, and those five people can all be swayed by the people's money <laughs> as they're like pouring money into the little action committees and all those types of things. You know. But never listen there's going to be a question on either one of these sides that you go. And the whole idea of this class and of what this Midrash teaches, of course, is... Fire the executive secretary. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Save money. 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 Save <laughs> oh, no, that's right. <laughs> well, I, 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 think, I think Jonathan has uh, inadvertently uh, uh, knowing our own constitution and our various branches of government and the reason why we have in the legislative branch a Senate and a Congress, one that is um, providing the same number of representatives regardless of the population of the state, and another body that is getting more representatives if you've got a larger state and a fewer representatives, you have a lesser state. The answer really is not either or, but both and. and I've got, actually, our state government has exactly the same. Precisely, system. precisely. So, so that's the deal. So, I'm, you know, I'm looking at this from the Jewish perspective right now. I'm trying to think. Okay, but these guys always seem to be okay with the money, and these guys always seem to have their act together. 
you know, Zola and fighting and whatnot, and some of them are religious and some of them are not, but they don't seem to argue about that. They just kind of accept one another. What a lesson we can learn. But I tried to figure out what the answer is before I read the rest of the Midrash. Three and a half hours later, and I still got it wrong! I feel like such a putz. Let's look at it. What the founders ordained was well thought out. One needs the majority of the people and the majority of the wealth. So that a poor majority cannot compel the minority of the wealthy, nor can the wealthy minority compel the majority who are poor. Rather, there must be an accord of the poor majority of the people with the wealthy minority. Let them collect the salary of a rabbi, cantor, or executive secretary in two parts. Half to be paid by a head tax and half to be paid according to wealth. Wow, so they split the guy's salary. They're going to get half his salary from the head tax as the people and half from the wealthy, from the, from the, uh, according to the wealth. The salary of the secretary was to be 50 gold pieces. So what are they going to do? 25 would be paid by a head tax. Each of the 45 households would pay a half gold piece. And the rich man and his family, five people in all, would pay just two and a half gold pieces. They don't have a big say in this because there's only five people. For the remaining 25 gold pieces, the rich man and his family paid 60%. 15 gold pieces and the rest would pay only 10. Thus, since the rich man and his family would be paying a total of 17 and a half gold pieces, he would not be paying a majority of the money, and thus had no veto or That is ancient Jewish ritual. Rabbi Menachem Mendel Ben Abraham Kokhmah. 1600s. Too bad he didn't he didn't write uh, 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 instead of uh, uh, Marx. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's some Jewish wisdom that Marx could have got. That's right. So here's how it, it uh, looks in the uh, in the graph. Here. So uh, the dark one is the head tax. You see the family's got much less of that percentage wise, and the light uh, bar is uh, the tax proportion level. You see, in actual case, of one effective way was the varying interests were balanced so that the wealthy were not subjected to envious confiscation, which I hate, nor were those on a lower economic level left to be dominated by the church. Wow. Some wisdom for a community. And I think we can learn much from this in our own country in learning how to handle was becoming a growing race uh, class war between the wealthy and, and and the lower middle class and the poor, which seemed to be a surprisingly large chunk of the country. Um, and that is that part of the problem, I think, is what we mentioned earlier, 47% of the country doesn't pay taxes. So there's too tax. large income tax. Income tax. They, pay. they pay taxes. But there's not enough. In other words, there needs to be more balance into who's paying in order for there to be a, a more sensible approach to what we spend the money on. Nothing wrong with the wealthy paying more, whether it's a percentage or otherwise, but the issue here seems to be to me, this makes so much sense, in that if, if, the, if the less wealthy people paid something in some cases, or paid more in other cases, they would probably be less inclined 
to fund these massive programs that most of them may not even be using anyway. And they would certainly be much more inclined to vote out of office people and bureaucrats and politicians forcing who, who, wait, for who waste money yeah. or who are or foolish or careless with funds. That's one of the biggest problems here on the day. Less so much the program for funding is the amount of money that's being just thrown away because they're not putting it into the right companies and they're not investing it in the right means. So huge chunks of money are just being lost. I'm paying a lot of money for hammers or toilets. Rush Limbaugh said probably about 10, 15 years ago that our taxes would not be any problem at all if we got rid of the whole idea of payroll deduction. Yep. Have everybody stroke a check. And and uh, and tax uh, exemption. Yeah. Nobody gets tax exemption. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is, and I think that this 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 midrash bears it out, is. We hear today a lot of discussion about the fairness of the tax system. And what this this is interesting because what it does is it shows that there there is not just one issue of fairness involved. There's 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 the issue of fairness and representation as well. And when you put the two together, it can't simply be tax and it can't simply be uh, a headcount. There has to be fairness on both sides. And those who are actually contributing to uh, the the wealth of the country now, like myself and probably everybody in the room, we feel like it's not fair. It's, but it's not because it's not fair because I'm paying. I have no problem paying. It's not fair because, and I'm not saying it's not fair because other people aren't paying. I have no problem with them not paying. What's not fair is I don't get a say. You know, I don't have any any influence. The people who are not paying have more influence than those who are paying. And that's that, that, that's not fair. That builds a root of bitterness yep. and, and causes these this kind of outbursts that we see. Um, it, it is astonishing to me that uh, we need to remember that this is only one piece of it. Two weeks ago, we talked about tzedakah and, and the whole giving of charity and taking uh, by the community monies for the good of the community. The taking was the tax, right? That's not the tzedakah. That's the tax for the good of the community. And we talked about the, uh, the concept of the difference between the man who is a member of the community who needs food. But we feed him. And we feed him so that he's got 14 meals worth laid up. Whereas the man who's passing through town who says he's hungry, we feed him. But the money that we put aside for our own community to help, he's got no right to. Because he's just passing through. So we've got that good balance between helping our own and helping those that God gives us. Are, are you are you hungry? That's how you feel a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, the system works better in a righteous community, um, and and even that's in a, a local and in a, in a, in a, a collective locale. Which I think modern state of Israel, even as modern and as globalized as the world is, it still has that that pockets of you know this is the kibbutz, this is the moshav, 
and, and, you, and that system can work there. So let this be a punch in the tooth as for us to get the messianic community in that same. But actually, this is be, this is be not a righteous. I mean, the point the point of this ruling was that there was a lack of righteousness, which is what laws come from. You know, is, there is a lack of righteousness. So how do we have to do this they in order to do it correctly? And our founding fathers said that government govern, governs best that governs that governs closest to home. So there's no question. Local government, state government, is the way it should be. Unfortunately, shortly after we had a war between the states, our United States were no longer considered a plural noun, but a singular noun, the United States. So that state sovereignty uh, went away to a certain degree, unfortunately. But I think that when you're dealing with these issues, one of the biggest mistakes is um, how much there is a lack of appreciation for consequences. Um, in terms of like how we're dealing with money and taxes. And the two most classic examples, there's a fictional account of um, Atlas Shrugged, the idea of the wealthy eventually saying, I give up, I'm not paying anymore. The irony is that actually is happening in some places. For example, the, right. the, community, the community of Valentine is actually talking about seceding from the city of Charlotte. Pretty loudly, too. Because they pay most of the taxes and get almost none of the benefits. Now, if Valentine were to secede, Charlotte would go into the toilet. They don't have, they would lose any norm, they, they wouldn't have to pay for anything. It would collapse. So exactly. you have a kind of a killing the and, golden and goose. And the funny thing is the Charlotte government's all going, go ahead, we don't care. It's sort of a yeah, killing the golden goose kind of concept. But then on top of that, there is a secondary balance of this, and that is when you when you spend money to into oblivion to the point where you eventually can't pay anymore and then creditors come to claim, you have a situation like you have in Greece where the poor rise up in violent riots because all of a sudden you don't have them provided the services that they were promised to get and you can't afford them anymore. So they have bombs going off in the post office and Athens of all places is a mess. And the poor people are rising up righteously and saying you should be caring for us. And they're right. They should be. And they're not. If they're working. Even if they're not working. The poor should be cared for, and they know it. And so, I mean, you look at their history, we've seen examples of that side of it. Things like, you know, look at France, for example. The wealthy completely abused the poor, and they eventually got all got their heads chopped off. So the point is, what I guess I'm getting at, is that the significance of this goes way beyond a theological discussion. Um, the, the consequences of the danger of doing this wrong is really great, and I think our own country needs to look at Europe and other places what's happening right now to realize that if we don't <laughs> correct some things, the life is going to be a lot more chaotic. And I agree with you up to one point. Which one's sounding better and better all the time. It is. It's not the country. It's this room. It's each one of us. Because that's the only reason why we're talking about this. Is because we all need to understand and agree exactly what the issues are. So that we can articulate them. And change the minds of those God places about us. That's what the Tzadikim do. They affect others. That's our job. If you want to be a righteous man... They'd be able to speak to righteousness. I was on the 
front yard this past Sunday, and my neighbors came back from church, and uh, there was a leak in the front lawn. Well, it wasn't the lawn that was leaking, it was the, it was the plumbing. So right away it came down to taxation, representation, and the fact that the leak is before the meter, praise God, not after the meter. Oh my goodness. Uh, so the city was going to have to pay for it. And that got me into the, you know, thing of, well, the city's going to have to pay for it, but I am the city. Right? I'm paying for it either way. I just would have to pay more of it if it were on my side of the meter. But uh, the, the conversation turned quickly to the presidential election and whether or not I thought that Mr. Romney was fit for office. And I said, you know, it's, it's funny that you should, uh, you should even raise that question about whether or not he's fit. I, I recall many questions about our current president and his fitness for office. Um, I'm curious, though, why would you raise that question? What, what is it that concerns you? Well, he's a Mormon. He's not a Christian. Better a Mormon than a Muslim. <laughs> <laughs> I actually said that. <laughs> <laughs> then I realized that's not the right answer. What's the problem? Stop. Think. What's the problem? What's their mindset? And what's wrong? Well, we've kind of got the wrong um, qualification here. The religion you claim to be a part of, not the way that you're acting or the way that you're guiding, okay. is actually the basis. Not how wise you are, how effective you've been, or the things that you've done. Action okay. is lost. I'm going to put that as number two. I like that. It's very good. I'm putting that as number two. I don't think it's going to work. And your, your point, if I can reiterate it for those uh, in uh, Florida or Denver, is... Uh, that we should look at the qualifications of the man and the history of the man rather than his claim to a religious sect. Because anyone can say anything. Exactly. So I would put that into most people. Do. What's the problem? I'd like to vote for him. Is that a Christian? This man is all concerned. This man is all concerned because he believes, or he's hearing Christians, he's hearing believers say that. Mr. Romney is a Christian. And we should vote against Mr. Romney because he's a Mormon, not a Christian. What's the problem? He, he can be, I mean, I know a lot of devout Christians that would just make terrible leaders. I mean, is, is, is that more or less the issue? Well, if you don't vote for someone, you're voting for someone else. Okay. Tom, I mean, he's sort of presuming that just because the guy is not a Christian, which is his faith, that he has nothing to contribute Precise. from some other faith. Precisely. That's right. the issue. And that's the issue we have with Christianity versus Judaism. Right. right. Oh, why don't we listen to the rabbis? They're not believers. Romans 13 actually puts the total kibosh on that because it talks about government in the neutral. Exactly. And, and we need to pray for those government leaders. And it doesn't say pray for them provided they're believers, right? Don't, don't pray for the pagan ones. We don't want to do that. Only pagan taxes to Christian kings. My point to this couple, this young couple was, you know, 
I can articulate the differences between Christianity and Mormonism for at least an hour and a half. I've taught the class. I think we've recorded it. It doesn't matter to me at all. My concern is threefold, and none of them are the faith of either candidate. It's the economy, and the fact that we are $16 trillion in debt, and I have a granddaughter. Oh my goodness. What are the other two? What are the top three issues? Economy? Israel. 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 Israel's big, and the threat of nuclear war between Iran and Israel is very, very concerning to me. The fact that we could have a, a soar in the gas prices just because of unrest there is extraordinarily concerning to me. What's the third <laughs> That's good. That's good. I, I, Staying I, I, on target. I love it. Gun control. Use two hands. It's <laughs> 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 not hard. That's the third. Abortion. Immigration. Immigration. The fact that we're counting people, and by counting the people. We discount our own citizens. That's an important aspect, I think. That it used to mean something to be an American. It used to mean something so important that people would die to get here. People would go literally through hell to become an American citizen. And I know some of you are sitting here, and you're not first generation in this country. Your descendants came here. Ancestors. Ancestors came here. That their descendants might be Americans, as mine did. That's important. With those three factors in mind, it doesn't matter whether you guys are Mormon, Catholic, Christian, Protestant. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. In this instance, do, does it matter? Yeah, I think it does. Because the worldview of any man affects how he acts. That's important, and we need to remember that. But you know what? From a worldview world perspective, I'm okay with a Mormon. I really am. They're incredibly moral. As far as I'm able to tell, if you don't hear it, but you read it, I don't care what flavor of Muslim you want. I'm unacceptable. That's concerning to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Annie, I think that, again, you're talking about, um, to my point previously, we want to talk more about action and less about words. If, if you look at the track record of the man in office now, and you say, He's not done a very good job fixing the economy. We're going into more in debt. He's doubled. Well, it, it's not his job to fix it. It's his yeah. job to mess it up. Well, if, if you look at his policies and you find that you disagree with him on your three key points on all of those, then it's very simple to look at the opposing candidate, see how his time in office, even though he's governor, not as president, and say, well, some things he did poorly. Okay, I don't like this one. But other things he did well, if we can get two out of three, or maybe whatever. Precisely. You know, the bottom line is, that no spending can occur 
in our country from a federal perspective unless the executive branch signs off on it. Put the pen away. <laughs> Let's put the pen away. We just can't afford any more. Whatever we got, I'm willing to pay for it. Put the pen away. But unfortunately, we have the opposite right now. And looking forward into the future without restraint or what was it without any hindrances, right. was it I can be more free, as you said to the Russian uh, uh, president. The, uh, the, the notion that a, an executive that feels he is unconstrained and that the power of the purse does not rest with the Congress, but rests in the executive branch, is not just frightening. It should be like setting off alarms where everybody should say, this is the end of representative democracy if, if that thinking goes forward. Exactly. And quite frankly, our form of checks and balances should prohibit that from happening. In, in, in the 1980s, for those that weren't old enough to remember, in the 1980s there was a huge issue with regard to... Uh, Ronald Reagan wanted to fund uh, uh, some rebels who were rebelling against the, uh, uh, the communists in Nicaragua. And so he actually wanted to fund them, and he tried to get Congress to pay for it, and Congress said no. And in fact, Congress made a law that said that no funding could come from anywhere in order to fund them. How many and, of you can spell Oliver North? And, mm -hmm. and, and the whole Iran-Contra uh, trials and everything. People went to jail because even though the Congress said it couldn't be funded, they didn't say that it couldn't be paid. And they, so they found a legal loophole, but people still went to jail. Things that are happening today that pale in comparison. That's true. Funding things that Congress has said you may not spend the money on, period, and they just simply write the check. Sure. Or, or, or quite frankly, where the members or the employees of the federal government are actually suing writing their the own government. checks. <laughs> they're suing the government because they're being commanded and directed to violate federal law, which they're already sworn to hold, uphold. Are you saying that those, those three things that you view as more important now just apply to this coming election? Yes, I'm, okay. I'm saying that in this election, when I sit and speak with anyone about uh, who the best candidate is and for whom they should vote. I'm, I'm not going to spew rhetoric about Mormon versus Muslim. I'm not going to spew rhetoric about anything other than my concerns for my country and my concern for the citizens of my country. And I think that the citizenry of our country and the very fabric of our nation are in jeopardy because of those three things. And it's those three things that I would ask every believer to think about, rather than their hospitals. Like you, you all know, there's no Second Amendment advocate in this room that, that could come close to where I'm at. Do you have any idea what an endowment member of the NRA is? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, and from abortion. I mean, my own, my own daughter and son-in-law are out, you know, protesting abortion. And, and the, the fact that we have too many cesarean sections going on. We are, we are people that are very, very pro-life. But that's not the issue now. The issue now are those three. We have an incredible debt. We have an incredible problem in the Middle East. 
immigration. We have an incredible lot of citizens that are being treated. People are being treated. treated citizens who are not exactly. And I think that's something that um, conservatives need to keep in mind. I think that every election has a different set of priorities based on the personalities and the candidates that are at hand. I think that in the year 2000, when you had George W. Bush right going up against Al Gore and the economy was more stable and other things, I think the issues like abortion were much more important because we saw firsthand the liberalism of, of sure. Clinton regime versus the conservatism that Bush represented. And that's my, and that's my point exactly. So it, those points change. I think it does change. I think it's important for us to recognize what's the priority now. 2012 election, we had completely different priorities in 2016. And who I vote for, and that also changes based on the, the election we're talking about. Who you vote for city council has nothing to do with their stance on abortion because they can't do hardly anything about it unless maybe there's a particular hot button issue that's coming up. Exactly. We just had an elect, a primary election where we voted on a, a marriage amendment. That's a totally different issue from what you would have eight years from now, hopefully. So the point is, I think every every election has its own issues to be to be keeping Absolutely. in mind. Too bad it's only a, so, it's always only two though. That's the problem. So I got to choose between. Let's try. <laughs> that immigration is a more important issue than saving the lives of children. You're saying that uh, uh, the economy is more important than saving the lives of innocent children. No. Okay. But it does come out that way. And we need to correct them. What we're saying is our ability to affect the saving of the unborn is will be lost. That's right. That's if these that's three, need to make sure you're saying, hey, I'm talking. I'm with you. And the reason for this class is not to worry about the executive secretary at the shul. The reason for the class is that we would have this dialogue and understand that. I've got it on good authority. There's not a prayer that Governor Romney is going to win this election. Not a prayer. But I get a dozen ways that we can affect those odds. And we can do that by talking to people that we deal with, that we come in contact with to make it clear that we are for the unborn, and we want to protect the unborn. You know what? President Obama has not affected abortion status since he came into office. He has not made it better. He's not made it worse. I have every reason to believe that Governor Romney is not going to make it better or make it worse. Gay marriage might be one issue. You know what? I don't think that the government should have any role in who gets married anyway. We but again, we had that. that's right. Again, don't miss my point. I'm not saying the other issues don't matter. I'm just saying that these three issues are so important. If we don't deal with these, if we don't deal with these, we don't, we don't get the opportunity to deal with others. Let me make a quick point, and then I'll take both your questions. Um, in a state in the in the western side of the nation, which will remain nameless. Um, well, the, um, the pro-life camp had the opportunity to, uh, through legislation, to stop 85% of 
of the abortions in that state. 85% of the abortions with one stroke of the pen would be illegal and would be stopped. Consider, count, the number of lives that could be saved. It is astronomical. 85%. We lost that election. Do you know why? We lost it because we voted against it ourselves. The ideology. The pro-life people voted it down. Why? Because it wasn't 100%. You know what? That's stupid. We should be ashamed. We are responsible for the 85% that are still being killed because we didn't wise up, as the master said, and be crafty, clever, like serpents, yet gentle as doves. We should have gotten rid of the 85% and then dealt with, in the next election, the 15% that was left. But no! He's not a Christian. I can't vote for him. Well, that's what I think I was going to say is that the, our opponents they would disagree with these moral values that we hold so dear and other not so moral but issues perhaps that are some necessary to our survival as a nation are very good at the long game. They're good at seeing that you make incremental change and then you change the nation. It's a mistake to think that we can change things automatically. And in that sense, when we talk about who we're voting for, I think that we have to always keep in mind Sometimes you have to choose between the, the better of two evils. I mean, I'll be honest with you. When when President um, Obama was running against candidate McCain, I didn't like either of them. I voted against uh, McCain in the primary, and I would have, and I voted against him, you know, correct, or I would have if I could have voted in 2000 when he ran against Bush. I didn't care for him at all, but I voted for him in the election because I saw him as Obama being so much worse in my mind. So in the same sense, I think that sometimes. We, um, if we can get caught up in a single issue and say, well, I'm voting for the constitutional party, which will garner a quarter of a tenth of a percent in the election. Who's that? Or I'm voting, you know, if you're the liberal side, I'm voting for the Green Party and go Ralph Nader, and he's going to simply prevent the better candidate. Or the NRA. Please do that. But the point being is... Or the, or the NRA. The point I mean, Second Amendment, and that's the only issue. The point is, though, that if you vote for a candidate that's no shot at winning, you might as well have not voted at all. And worse... You run the risk of actually voting for your opponent. Because, in fact, the liberals themselves can bewail this very point. In 2000, George Bush beat Al Gore primarily because Ralph Nader stole, like, a couple hundred thousand votes. That's all it took. I send him money to try to get him this year. <laughs> uh, Joshua's going to have to help me with this, but um, the Hebrew, Lo'ish, uh, what was that from? That was from the... Uh, it's song. Yeah, it's from, it was from... Play with the weather. I'm yeah. going to play it at this right, man. Uh, and, or possessive. Low is, is it when you say low it means no normally, but if you use it as a um, as a, as like a possessive item, it's like to him. So like if I were to, to give something, if I say um, I'm giving something to that guy over there, I would say low. So, but, but this is not spelled Lamed Aleph. It's spelled Lamed Bav, and the and the notion that to him and and those who are. Uh, um, Loyal to him are Muhammad Bob. We are the thirty-six, and it doesn't take it doesn't take uh, hundreds of thousands or millions. It takes thirty-six, and it as and and Joshua in our conversation brought up the the those thirty-six that died. 
the battle of Ai. The righteous died at the battle of Ai because of the sin of the camp. It takes 36. It doesn't take everyone. It takes the righteous standing up and saying, we oppose the darkness. 36, that's it. So, um, for those that are unfamiliar, give it the generational issue of the 36. Well, in every generation, this is a Hasidic teaching, and, and whether you whether you acknowledge the, the literalness of the 36 is not important, but the idea that there are the, a righteous remnant in every generation, and, and the Hasidic thinking is that there are 36 righteous men in every generation. Supremely righteous. And like supremely eight, righteous who preserve the world. And and Yeshua gave this, this very this very concept, although it wasn't under the 36, but he gave us a very concept that the righteous, the remnant, righteous remnant preserved the world, and it doesn't take everyone. It just takes those who are to act. And you see this with Sodom and Gomorrah. God tells Lot, I can find ten who will spare the city. And I think that even, even in our own country's history, we can see the whole concept behind every vote counts. Um, there was the, there's this, the, the state of Texas through a collection of elections became the state of the United States because of one vote. One guy voted for his representative that won by one vote. And that representative was the one vote that voted Texas to becoming part of the U.S. So the idea is that... (laughs) (laughs) What were we thinking? That was not a good story, Jill. Even on the practical level, even on the practical level, you can have a significant impact as a single person. But on a spiritual level, it's off the charts as a single person. Right. For the righteous, the effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. So you get so if you're a righteous man, your vote counts more. <laughs> so of those thirty six righteous men in this generation, I want to influence a third of them tonight. You need to be able to articulate for whom you are voting and why. And you need to do it with clarity and quietness. There's no reason you don't want it. And there's certainly no reason to stoop to name calling and to concerns about someone's faith or whether or not they have a birth certificate or whatever. And this is not important. It's all a red herring. It's three big ones. If I don't move on, we're never going to get a glass of wine. <laughs> Tax the rich! I can't drink wine. <laughs> you have wine? I got it. Oh, so you wanted to talk. Yeah. <laughs> in a place in which there is a custom or the desire to levy a single tax for all these together, the method of taxation should be essentially according to wealth. For according to Torah law, all we collect for all these needs to be according to wealth, not the capital basis. And you remember, we just read that recently. Right? So, that's uh, King Rehoboam. Somebody uh, pull out uh, 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 6 to 11, verse 15, we close with this. While somebody's pulling it up, who can tell me what the following is? King Rehoboam's father. Mm. One thing he has the wrong advisor. He did. That was his father. So we've got uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, right? So you can remember that Rehoboam 
was the rightful heir to the throne. Son he Solomon. was Solomon's son. Jeroboam was not. How many golden calves do we have in the scripture? Three. One that we read about in the Torah, and two that are in Jeroboam. One in Dan and one in Bethel, I think. Right? He set up golden calves. That's unbelievable. You don't need to go down to Jerusalem and put your taxes and all your tithes and everything there. No, 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 no. Just stay right up here. Oh, I got a nice place for you to do that. And some people actually did it. Hello? <laughs> Tried that once. Didn't yeah, you? I've seen this movie. Didn't work out well last time. Who's got that? Just give me 6 to 11. Hold 15 for pause. Okay. Can Rambam consult with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to answer this people? And they spoke to him, saying, You will be a servant to this people today, and will serve them and grant them their petitions, speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him, and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. So he said to them, What counsel do we give that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Light the yoke which your father put on us? The young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus shall you say to this people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, that you make it lighter for us. But you shall speak to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. <coughs> Whereas my father. Those in your Gastonia has nothing to do with anything that you need to answer. I will add to your yoke. My father disciplines you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Mm. So, the older folks, the wise ones say, your dad was pretty harsh on the people. <coughs> you need to be a servant to the people. You need to lighten the load a little bit and earn the respect and care of people. The young guys he grew up with said, forget that stuff. You need to make it clear who's in charge. And you need to lay the burden down and make it clear. You thought it was tough? That's nothing. And the bottom line, we get a sense in verse 15 on the people's reaction to the king. What was it? So the king did not listen to the people, for it was the turn of events from the Lord that he might establish his word, which the Lord spoke through Ahiyah the Shimonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. You get one more? What were the people saying? Uh, I might have been the verse before. Verse, verse 16. 16. When all Israel saw the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Bishai to your tents, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David, so Israel departed to their tents. Are you kidding? I got nothing here with David. I'm out of here. Take care of David's house yourself, man. You don't need us because we don't want to have anything in And they walk. I mean, to me, it's the ultimate in a taxation gone amazingly wrong. And some of you mentioned it early on in this discussion. That eventually, the wealthy will say, Switzerland sounds much better, you know. Denmark, whatever it may be, something's got to be better than this. I want to encourage you. Nothing is better than this. 
other than a theocracy in that land. Trust. Well, I was just going to say, as we are grafted into God's people, God's people have never found the home. Out of all the empires of which they've been a part of, and currently the American Empire, there is no, no no place for them. So we should not, and I see this a lot, and it, it really irks me. So I am not patriotic in the sense that this is not my home. This is where I was born, yes, and this is where I'm proud to be from, but my eyes will never be, my roots are never in America. My roots are only with God's people, wherever they are. I understand that 100%, and like Abraham, you're looking for a city whose architect is God himself. And I understand that, and I'm with you 100%. Until he comes back, you've got to live somewhere. If you can't live there, you've got to live here. Well, we the could live there, but people keep telling us we can't. That's right. You <laughs> can't be there. This is the next best thing, no question about it. We have freedoms that are incomparable. So, summary. I, the top three that I came up with there may not be the top three that you could but I would encourage you to articulate what you believe about whom we should vote for and that you talk about. Common wisdom today says that there are three topics we never talk about. Religion, politics, and sex. Those are the only three things we should be talking about. Your worldview and the religion you have matters to your citizens, to your people, to your family, and ultimately to where you'll spend time in the world to come. How you vote and for whom you vote, or whether you choose to even vote, can affect the lives of so many millions of people. It is extraordinarily important. If you don't want to talk about it, wrong with you. And there really is a problem having sex before marriage. It really is a problem when women have sex with women and men have sex with men. And who marries whom? And who dictates what's right and wrong? You want to talk about sex? We're going to talk about morality. You want to talk about sex? We're going to talk about who makes the rules. And it's God. It is Hashem. Three topics, get three issues. Pick, guys. Come on, stand up, be counted. There's nobody else on the planet that's expected to stand up but you. That's what this class is all about. Amen. Amen. Let me see if I can find a really cool blessing for you. Is there a blessing? Is there a blessing? Keep the czar. While you're going through that, I just want to encourage you to get to that point of, uh, on prayer. And if you pray the Amigad week, and this is a really good week to do that because you get cool extra prayers, um, there is a section that specifically prays for government. Um, and I encourage you to pray that section. And while you're praying it, um, uh, Rob Shaul has also some encouragement to pray for the government that God's people might live peaceable and quiet lives in godliness and honesty. Um, so if you want to insert prayer for your country, the leaders of Israel, etc. be a really good time to do that. Amen. When the rabbis of old take leave of each other at the study hall of Rav Ami, they would say to one another, 
You shall see the desires of your world and your life, and your end shall be with the life of the world to come, and your hope for many generations. May your heart ponder and achieve understanding. May your mouth speak wisdom. And may your tongue bring forth song. May your eyelids look straight before you. May your eyes be enlightened by the light of Torah. And may your face shine like the brightness of the sky. May your lips utter knowledge. And your kidneys rejoice in righteousness. And your feet run to hear the words of the ancient of days. Amen. Amen. Uh, Joseph, just yes. to clarify, 36, the letters Lamed Vav are, are numeric. The letters in Hebrew stand for number numbers. Numbers, that's right. Number 36 okay. comes from Lamed 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 Lamed. Lamed. Good. Well, gentlemen, I thank you. Um, unfortunately, we lost Peter for much of this as he was uh, helping one of my clients. Man, we are right on time, 8.30. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. So we're, uh, we're out on time. I hope that uh, some of you, if you have an opportunity, can just sit and chat and have a glass of wine with me. But, uh, you would uh, allow me that, uh, that privilege. I'll be here. Sean, I don't know if you're a wine drinker, but I'd love to pour you a glass of wine. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I had to twist this on. <laughs> you have to, uh, you have to fly. Beats unemployment, doesn't it? Absolutely. Because I think we've been